0: Well, Advent is a great season, and yet we so easily miss it. The social hype that is shouting to us loudly, and let's face it, has been for the last few weeks, is simply, Christmas is coming! And you must be ready, waiting, fully prepared. Otherwise, we really won't enjoy it, will we? The best dinner possible... The best gifts, the best TV and films to watch. Today, advertisers prepare our Christmas celebrations for us, do they not? To the very last detail. And woe betide you if you don't follow their lead, because you can't possibly have a great Christmas otherwise, can you? Well, we're beginning Advent today. Some of you will know that the Advent season focuses on expectation and you might think that it also serves as an anticipation of Christ's birth in the season leading up to Christmas. Well, yes, that's true. But that's only part of it. There is much more to Advent than that. The word itself is derived from the Latin word adventus, meaning coming, which is a translation of the Greek word parousia. Scholars believe that during the 4th and 5th centuries in Spain and Gaul, Advent was actually a season of preparation for baptism of new Christians at the January Feast of Epiphany, which was much more um, highly important in the Orthodox Church. The celebration of God's incarnation then is represented by the visit of the Magi to the baby Jesus. We read about it in Matthew chapter 2. And on January 5th, we will indeed be celebrating Epiphany here. But during this season of preparation, the new Christians would spend 40 days in penance, prayer, and fasting. Does that sound a bit familiar? When else do we have 40 days of penance, prayer, and fasting? And what colour is the colour for the season of Lent? And what colour is the colour for the season of Advent? Purple. I have my purple earrings on. They will stay on for Lent. There's little connection in those early days between Advent and Christmas. Until the 6th century, by this time, the Roman Christians... Why is it always the Roman Christians? They had tied Advent to the coming of Christ. But the coming they had in mind was not Christ's first coming in the manger in Bethlehem, but his second coming as the judge of the world. And it's not actually until the Middle Ages that Advent is explicitly linked to our celebrations at Christmas and Christ's first coming. As you probably are aware, I have been quite poorly this week and had to spend most of the week in bed, which is not a place I particularly enjoy being, but it gave me an opportunity to finish my book. I've been trying to read this book for weeks. I've finished it this week. It's by Kate Atkinson. It's called Started Early, Took My Dog. Has anybody read it? No. Okay, well, it's a good book. It's about um, a chap called Jackson Brodie. And as I started reading it, I realised I'd read a book about him before, another one that she'd written. When I got to the end, I discovered that there is another book all about this chap. Now, I am a person who likes to watch and read series of things. I like the play of the continuing story. I like to see how the characters develop. So... This is a big hint. I'd quite like the next book <laughs> in the story. Um, just one copy would be good, though. I don't want lots of copies. I'll just tell you what it's called. It's called a Big Sky. So <laughs> I thought I would buy it myself, and then I had a moment of, oh, no, maybe I shouldn't buy it. Maybe somebody else would buy it for me. However, I'm not the only person who likes to see how things develop. There's a sequel to a film that has just been released. I'll give you a clue. <laughs> <laughs> the film? Frozen. Do you realise that Frozen, the first one, was actually done in in 2013? It's six years old. I was quite taken aback when I discovered that. We seem to have been singing that Let It Go song for a long time. But it shows, doesn't it, actually, how long it takes to make a sequel of these animated films. Um, Six years to make a sequel. Presumably they had kind of planned that beforehand. They are advertisers and moneymakers after all but I wonder what... I haven't seen the film yet, so I wonder what Olaf and Anna and Elsa and Sven will get up to in the sequel Frozen 2. So we'll put him here. I've wedged him because he doesn't sit up terribly well. My Olaf stuffed toy. How many little girls do you know, and maybe some bigger ones too, who are really looking forward to seeing this new film? But maybe you have other films that you would really love and desperately want to see the sequel of. And I wonder if you expect that the sequel will always be better than the first. Of course, the Star Wars situation has become ridiculous because now they've got prequels, so they've got the befores. I don't know, beyond me, but... There's a something about that continuing story watching characters develop. Advent is a time, if you like, when we look at the films of Jesus' life. We look back at the first film, the true story of Jesus' birth, and we look forward to the amazing sequel, When Jesus Returns. The only odd part about this, I suppose, is that we look at the sequel first in Advent, although, of course, all of us have a bit of an idea of the action of the first film, don't we? So we're not entirely surprised. So as this year we move from year C, focusing on Luke's gospel, to year A, focusing on Matthew's gospel, I wonder what we will discover during Advent. Well, our reading had lots of important ideas and images within it, the one from the gospel, but it needs to be read in context. Jesus is telling the disciples about the end times, as they admire the amazing temple building, how this very temple will become ruins. They ask him more questions, and Jesus shares with them some things that could potentially happen in their lifetimes. Just glance at the text, though. It's not very pretty, is it? There'll be um, wars, nations rising against nations. There'll be famines and earthquakes. You'll be persecuted. You'll be handed over to death. Um, There'll be lots who will turn away from Christ. There will be false prophets. Um, The love of most people, it says, will grow cold. It's not a very jolly tale. I don't think I'd want to watch that film. But the disciples also ask, so what's going to be the sign of your coming back? and the very end of the age, verse 3. This is the parousia that I mentioned earlier. And from verse 36, where our reading began today, Jesus begins to share about this whole situation. And he starts, but about that day. Jesus has shared about this time before, the day when he's going to come back, but the 12 had not completely understood what he really meant. Maybe they just couldn't comprehend that he was even going to leave them. After all, you know, when you've got a new best friend, you don't want them to leave, do you? But now they get a blow-by-blow account of what it's going to be like. I think the first thing to notice about this is that even Jesus doesn't know when this is going to be. Only the Father knows, he says in verse 36. Now some of the earliest copies of the manuscript for this bit of the Gospel clearly found this was difficult. These people who copied the Gospel out saw this bit, not not even the sun, and couldn't quite work that out. Of course Jesus would know when he was coming back. They obviously found it an embarrassment, so they just missed that bit out. That's the danger of copying things, isn't it? We can miss things out. But I wonder if perhaps this is actually an admission of Jesus that really helps us to understand that emptying of himself, his divine self, excuse me, His divine self that we read about in Philippians 2. Well, there are three important things to note about when he does come back. First of all, there will be no warnings. It will be visible and sudden and just happen. That's it. It will occur. Secondly, life is going to be normal right up to the very moment for everybody. Jesus makes that comparison with the time of Noah, when Noah was building the boat, most people were completely unaware of the impending flood and God's judgment through it. I wonder if you've seen the film Evan Almighty. Have you seen the film Evan Almighty? Yes. So that's a film, um, a kind of a take on this particular story about this chap in America who God, in the form of Samuel L. Jackson, um, wearing a white suit, which is just quite amusing at one level, um, is telling this man, Evan, that he needs to build a boat, which is ridiculous, they live nowhere near any water, apart from a reservoir high up in the hills. Evan is asked by God, just like Noah was, to build this boat, and everybody thinks he's gone completely mad. Now, it doesn't say in the scripture that everybody thought Noah had gone mad, but you know... It was a weird thing to do when there was no water nearby to build a big boat. Especially the size of the one that Noah built. But everybody else gets on with their mundane lives. What does the Bible say? Eating, drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. All those kind of normal everyday things. The things in which we all participate. And then suddenly the flood comes The third thing that Jesus makes clear is that this is going to divide families and work colleagues right down the middle. One will be taken and the other left. Just as in the flood, the people who were wicked will be swept away and the righteous ones left. What did God say about Noah? I will save him because he has walked faithfully with me. Genesis chapter 6 verse 9. And so it will be on that day. Those who are wicked will be swept away. Now there's been some confusion over this little bit of the passage um, in the past and it, it's, it's difficult. You can read it kind of both ways. The ones that are swept away are the ones that God saves and the ones that are swept away are the one God destroys. It's tricky but the, the number of commentators I've read they go for the second one that the ones that are swept away are the ones who will face destruction. And that kind of works if you link it with Noah. The ones who were swept away were the ones who were destroyed. But can you imagine how puzzled the disciples must have been as they are listening to these things that Jesus is saying? But he's now coming to the most important part. So forget the confusion in a sense. What is he wanting to say most clearly to them? Verse 42. Therefore, because of this, in other words, because of all of that, this is the key thing. You must keep watch. You must stay awake. But what does he really mean? Well, verse 43, if you knew your house was going to be burgled, you would keep watch so as to prevent it. Well, you would, wouldn't you? If you knew it was going to be burgled, you'd endeavour to stop that happening. This image of a thief obviously caught the imagination of the disciples and Jesus here is on that day. And we find it spread across the New Testament It's written about in Luke, in Thessalonians, in Peter and in Revelation. That idea of staying awake or alert. And in Romans 16, 15, there's even a link to keeping your clothes on. Which, as I was reflecting on that that verse, it reminded me of my childhood holidays. My father used to like to get up really early and drive early in the morning, so that we would virtually have a whole extra day of holiday. Partly I think this was because we were camping, so there was always lots of tents to put up and all that kind of thing. But the night before we went on holiday, my brother and I would have to sleep in our clothes for the next day so that at four or five in the morning, my parents could gently lift us into the car and we were already fit to go. Half asleep, yes, but we were ready for the off. I don't know if you've had that same kind of an experience or whether that was just my particular parents' way of dealing with holidays. Who knows? But in the Bible, clothing is often seen as a metaphor for a life of discipleship. We live a life where we are clothed in holiness, where we are people who do good deeds, where we endeavour to follow Jesus' example, and we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Dick France, the commentator, suggests that being ready means living faithfully the life that Jesus has called us to, not to engage in end-time speculation, but to Be prepared. In chapter 25 of the Gospel, Jesus goes on to give three parables that help to um, enlighten this thinking. There's the ten virgins, who all went to sleep, interestingly enough. They were not alert. However, when the knock of the door came, the bridegroom is on his way, five of them had made better preparation, and therefore they were able to go to the party. The second parable is the one about the bags of gold, where one servant decides that he'll dig a hole. Well, he might just as well have put himself in it, because he made no difference to life, made no change for anybody. Um, he just kind of hid his head in the sand. He certainly didn't live the life, his life to the best of his ability, or give the gold the chance to do its work. And then thirdly, the sheep and the goat story, where Jesus reminds his hearer, hear us that there will be work to be done for others. When did I see you naked and you clothed me? When did I see you sick and you visited me? When did I see you in prison and you visited me? These are kind of the clothing things that God retires from us in our life of discipleship. Ian Paul, um, a contemporary theologian, a friend of mine, in fact, has written this. In practice, most Christians in history have met their Lord and Judge at the end of their earthly lives. So the promise of Jesus' coming has always had an existential rather than chronological significance. But surely this sense of hope and expectation should shape all of our life and prayer as we ask God our Father, that his name be hallowed, his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as in heaven. I wonder if that's true for you and for me, that that's how we see this issue of Christ's return, as something existential, not something chronological that we can expect at any moment So I'd like to challenge us this Advent, as we move into our new liturgical year, how will you live your life? How will I live mine? Will we be alert for God at work amongst us, in the parish, in the diocese, across the world? Over the next four weeks, we will inadvertently live Advent and Christmas concurrently. It's not supposed to be like that. We'll be mixing up the first film with the second. And yet, there is a common message in both films. It's very simple. The message is that waiting for the end is not a static thing. It will mean movement. It will mean being vigilant. It will mean being faithful and being prepared. The shepherds were vigilant. They saw in the sky a host of angels. They were faithful and they moved to discover what it was that God was trying to show them. The wise men, well, they had to follow a star and search. So I wonder what movement you and I will make as we wait. And perhaps more importantly, Who will we tell about the waiting? Who will we invite to join us in it? Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, as we examine these films of your coming, although we have to do them together, Help us to see the importance of both. Help us to live lives that are waiting in hope and expectation. And that we will be able to bring glory to your name in this day and every day. Amen.